we continue our series in Philippians this morning. Philippians 3, 1 to 14. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, as it is safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those manipulators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, but who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through, through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straightening towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. That's great. Thank you, Alina. I'm just going to pray for us quickly, and then we'll crack on. Father God, thank you that you love us. Pray help us today as we study your word to seek first your kingdom, to come with humble hearts, to hear your word, and to be changed by it and be transformed by it. We, we need you to do this, Lord God, so we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Cool. So uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the leaders here at HT. As some of you will know, um, before I started working at the church, I was an uh, English teacher at a secondary school down in Catford. And on the last week that I was teaching, I'll be honest, I finished the curriculum. We covered all the books we needed to. I did what all good humanities teachers do when you haven't got uh, a lesson planned. We had a debate. And I got, the, I got my class there and I said, I'm going to ask them. Let's ask them a big question. I put it in front of them. I said, guys, what is the meaning of life. Now, I don't know what I was expecting, considering that one time when I was teaching them and showing them a clip of World War II, a child came up to me and asked, what was it like when the world was black and white? It's a worrying moment. Um, so I don't know what I was expecting when I gave them this big philosophical question. Um, but the most common answer that I received as we went um, around the class was to be happy. The meaning of life is to be happy. They saw the... Um, aim of their existence was to experience the ongoing, um, the ongoing experience of happiness, which, you know, admittedly has having taught them for two years, hoping to have a bit of a better vocabulary than just to be happy. You know, you're going to give them a bit more words than that. But nevertheless, from a sort of philosophical standpoint, not a bad answer. Um, 
But then just to kind of provoke the discussion, I presented another scenario to them. I said to them, if I were to give you a pill, okay, and this pill wouldn't give you infinite bliss. It would make you happy for the rest of your life. Doesn't matter what happens. Doesn't matter if uh, you never have to work or do anything again to make it happy, make you happy. You don't have to achieve anything. You will just sit there in your home in blissful ignorance, feeling very happy. Doesn't matter if the people around you get sick or unwell. Doesn't matter if anything bad happens around you. You won't care. You'll just be happy. And when I put this to them, most of them, well, no, actually everyone, not a single one of them would have taken the pill. They would have said, no, there's something unsatisfying that. There's something really uncomfortable about that. There's something that doesn't feel right, that happiness has to maybe be earned. Or they were like, does happiness need to be um, you know, related to our experiences? There was something wrong about it for them. And I would say the reason we feel uncomfortable about this idea is that happiness is, I don't think we're meant to experience constant happiness. I also don't think that happiness is the ultimate aim of our life. But with that in mind, it begs the question, what is um, we're continuing our series in Philippians today, as we've just done the reading there, looking at this subject of joy and how do we live with joy, how do we have joy in our life. Um, and this section that we look, look at starts with Paul commanding his friends to rejoice. He then spends the rest of the chapter reminding them of the reasons they have to rejoice. For Paul, joy is a side effect. It's a byproduct of something else. It's something you have in your life and that causes joy. So, For Paul, and we're going to explore this more as we read the verses, the most beautiful and worthwhile purpose, the ultimate end of his existence, the thing that he is aiming for, the direction of his life, is to know Jesus. If Paul, the writer of half the New Testament, one of the most influential people in all of human history, was sitting in my class that day and I'd asked the question, what is the meaning of life? He would have said confidently and simply, to know Jesus. Now, admittedly, if you don't believe in God or you don't like you just think Jesus maybe is a wise teacher, then that idea that knowing him is the end purpose of every human person's existence must seem absolutely ludicrous. I don't know how everyone here would answer the question. We might all have different responses. What is the meaning of life? We might find meaning in family or friends. We might find meaning in charitable activity and kindness. We might think meaning is something that we just create to give ourselves, um, sort of make life a bit more bearable. But whatever it is, we do all act and live as if life is a meaningful activity. We all expect that life, there is some inherent meaning to life. If we didn't, we wouldn't operate within the boundaries of society. We, when you meet someone who genuinely thinks that life is meaningful, their life looks, is, is, sorry, that believes life is meaningless, their life looks very different. In fact, I don't think I've ever met anyone who, whose life suggests that every single thing we do will be lost in the sands of time, that, um, that the, you know, humanity will one day die out, the sun in 500 million years will explode, and everything we do will be forgotten. You know, most people I meet, they're struggling to work out how to live, how to, how to experience joy, how to do something meaningful. Like We might say there is no inherent meaning in life, but we would probably judge someone quite differently if they spent the entire rest of their life trying to get the highest score on a mobile phone game like Candy Crush, or if they went to some far-flung country to give their life serving people in need. You know, we, we look at those things differently, and whoever we think about the inherent meaning of life, we do look at those differently. But the problem is, without any concept of a creator God, regardless of now whether that's the God of Christianity or just some ethereal force in the universe, there cannot be any inherent meaning to life. The person who makes something is the one that designates its use. If I were to make a cup of tea, and I do like, like, you know, write a mug for my tea, I would think, okay, I've got to make it with the right size handle. I've got to make it with the right aperture to keep it warm as long as possible. I've got to have the right thickness. I do have quite strong opinions on how you make it, on on my mug and which one I'm going to use. Now, admittedly, someone could come along and put some flowers in there and use it for something different. 
But what you'd think is quite quickly, you'd be like, well, why has it got a handle? What's the point of that? You know, why is it not thinner at the top to hold the flowers together? The, what it would do is we'd think, okay, any quest for real meaning in life is a quest for the person who created us and, give, and endows meaning in that creation. And therefore, it's a choice for all of us. When we look at the world to think, to see in every single person this kind of quest for meaning, this desire to find some meaning in their life, and to think either that that's just comes kind of, that their experience isn't really valid, that, that it's just some quest, by some uh, evolutionary joke just to kind of make our lives feel a bit better, or it really is something that points us towards there being meaning in life. This isn't a matter of there being evidence that points us one way or the other. The fact that there's some evidence and we've got to learn how to interpret it and how, what we're going to do with that evidence. So we start off with the idea that there is um, you know, maybe some vague creative force, but how does that lead Paul to conclude that knowing Jesus is the ultimate meaning to life? First, and from his perspective, is the very act of creation suggests a desire for the created thing. For example, I make a mug because I want something to enjoy my tea in. Paul's reading of the Old Testament is that God creates mankind um, as something emotional, relational, personal, because God wants to have a relationship with it. The whole Old Testament is this beautiful, painful, messed up love story between God and mankind, where God is constantly pursuing mankind to have a relationship with mankind, but mankind goes astray. And we get to the point in the Gospels then where God becomes a human being to be able to fulfill this, um, to fulfill everything that he wants for them and to um, die on their behalf to restore the relationship between God and man. That's the beautiful part of the love story. It's like the culmination. It's the bit where they're in the story where they run to the airport and finally fall in love and it's all okay. Um, for Paul to know Jesus is to know his soulmate. It's to know his salvation, to know his hope, to be changed, to be more like Jesus. And ultimately it's to live exactly as he was created to live. I remember a long time ago being taught to windsurf. I was awful at windsurfing, and I still am. But I remember being told exactly where to put my feet, exactly which angle to stand at, where to hold the boom, just sort of stick along the side of it. Now, I could have decided, actually, that's not what I want to do. I'm going to stand on this end. I'm going to not hold it there. I'm going to try and like wind, just surf it out. But what would have happened is either I would have gone nowhere or, more than likely, just fallen off a lot more times than I did. But there's this moment when you're learning where you manage to just get your body just right. You hold on the right place. You get your feet in the right position. The wind takes you, and suddenly you are just gliding along. You feel like, honestly, like you're in sync with nature. You feel like the wind waves. You're one with them. It's beautiful. And we might not like the idea that our purpose is already decided for us or that we don't get to decide our own meaning. But when we step into relationship with Jesus, suddenly we don't want to put our feet anywhere else. We start to experience all those byproducts of joy and hope and peace, which say to us that we've found what we're looking for. But I do admit it's hard to explain in one talk the long intellectual, emotional wrestling that for me has got to the point where I can say, yes, Jesus is the center point of my life. He is the, my ultimate aim. And I would generally encourage anyone who's like wrestling with that is actually, is this the center point? Is this something important to come and chat to me afterwards? I'd love to have a conversation. I can try and explain a bit more where I'm coming from, how I've come to that conclusion. But... What I want to do is use that as our starting point, that our entire meaning for life, our purpose, our aim of every other thing on offer in the universe is to know Jesus. I want to consider how do we position our body, how do we get our feet in the right place, how do we hold on tightly and move deeper into relationship with him. Now first there's some headwork to be done. When I'm talking about going deeper into relationship with Jesus, I want you to know that Jesus already loves you. 
He's given his life for you. He's open and ready to be in relationship with him. To continue the windsurfing analogy a little further, it's like the wind is blowing and nothing we can do is going to make the wind blow anymore. The wind is, everything I say today is just about how do we position ourselves to receive and respond to that. You see, back to Paul's letter to the Philippians. After telling his friends to rejoice, he warns them about people who are trying to justify themselves, who think that they are good enough to stand before God, or in other words, strong enough and powerful enough to make the wind blow. He says, if someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. What Paul is saying about himself is that if anyone was ever able to earn the right to come into God's presence, it would be him. He has done everything that the Jewish tradition, the Jewish customs expected of him. He has worked his whole life doing this stuff. And he is committed to it. He says, if anyone could do it, it would be me. But then he follows it with this line. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. My Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He says, I consider them garbage or rubbish. Or I'm pretty sure in the actual original language, the word was a lot stronger than that. And probably not something I'm allowed to say in church. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes through Christ, from God on the basis of faith. Nothing he does, nothing he has done, and nothing that he's doing is going to make him acceptable to God. He is only able to come into God's presence because of the goodness won for him when Jesus Christ died on the cross on his behalf. The only thing that matters to him is knowing Jesus. Just imagine, like we've obviously had the coronation this weekend, um, I don't know if we watched it yesterday, but imagine I turned up at Buckingham Palace tomorrow and I said, oh, is that, can I come in? The guy's like, no. So I'd be like, okay, well, actually, I'm not. Sorry, you don't get it. I'm one of the leaders at H2. You might have heard of us. We're a pretty big deal. Nope. So I think, okay, I'm going to bust out the big guns now. So I go, okay, don't worry. I've got this. Here are my swimming certificates. This 50 meters, 100 meters, 200 meters. Open the doors. I'm not going to get let in, am I? The guy's not going to be impressed by that, okay? And that's what it's like when, when Paul comes with all his achievements, all of his life, everything we've done, all the good things, the way we think of ourselves as good people, all of that is like coming in with our swimming certificates. Can I come in? But the difference would be is if I came up with King Charles and he came to the gate with me and he said, this guy's with me, which is exactly as I imagined King Charles speaks, um, then I'm not going to have any problems getting in. There's going to be no issue there. Now, knowing Jesus is everything, that is the center point of it. That is that relationship that makes all the difference. But yet here's the kicker. The most powerful being in the cosmos, our creator and redeemer, wants to be with us. And the bit that hurts most is that most Christians, and I put myself very painfully in the middle of this, we would rather watch Netflix than experience the unparalleled privilege of spending time with Jesus. And it's, obviously it's not, it's, we're either too busy or worse, we just can't be bothered. And obviously, it's not just Netflix for everyone. Okay, we're all going to have different things. Sometimes I find it easier to clean the house than I do to sit quietly in prayer. There's something about it where I'm like, oh, I'd rather just be busy and do all this stuff than I would be to actually just take a moment to stop. Sometimes I just sit there and scroll mindlessly through my phone rather than doing prayer. The stuff like that, which I say is so valuable. Sometimes I spend every free night hanging out with lovely, lovely friends rather than the King of Kings. Don't be surprised at this, though. This shouldn't be a surprise to any of us because we are in a culture whose mantra is do whatever feels best. You deserve what you desire. When my students said they wanted a life where they were happy, I kind of pressed them on it a bit more. So what does that mean? What does that actually mean to you? And what they meant, what they said was, 
I want a life where I can essentially afford to buy whatever I want. I can watch whatever I want, and I can have the space and time to consume whatever food, whatever things I want. That's how they saw happiness, was this idea of bringing things into themselves, being able to freedom to grab all of this stuff, rather than seeing actually that they're enslaved to it, that all this stuff is demanding so much of them. They had this incredible belief given to them through advertising, through Disney, through music, through the whole culture, that if they could just adequately feed their strongest desires, then they would find the joy they were all searching for. And it's a brutal lie. We just have to admit that because it's a lie that works itself out as people saying, look, I'm not satisfied in my marriage. I deserve to be satisfied. Therefore, it's okay for me to have an affair. It's my children deserve the best. Uh, so I'll lie on their school application so they can get into the nice school and forget about everyone else in the catchment area. It's, it feels good to have a little moan about that person. And we feel superior to criticize them. So therefore, it really can't be that bad. So it's a destructive lie. And the more we believe it, the more our heart, until Sorry, the more we believe it, the more we live it until our actions become habits, our habits become our character. And suddenly we're always moaning about people and struggling then to be positive and encouraging. Or we're becoming so inward focused that we look at our own character and not at, um, and so we, we become so inward focused that we don't really need, notice the need around us in the world. And as followers of Jesus, we are just as vulnerable to those lies. And often the reason we don't feel satisfied with the gospel is not because we're hideous failures or because the gospel isn't good. It's just that we have believed something else that undermines that truth. The classic image is the choice between a healthy body and healthy lifestyle or a chocolate bar. Our desires might be for a healthy body and a healthy lifestyle, but when we're feeling peckish and we know what's in the cupboard, our strongest desire is for the chocolate bar. And we simply respond to do whatever feels best. It takes you into the cupboard, okay? But what happens to us as Christians when we follow that mantra is that it leaves us as spiritually bloated Christians. We choose comfort and pleasure over the powerful, contented, joyful spiritual maturity on offer through Jesus. But the question is, what if we can be bothered? What if we want to feel the wind at our backs to experience deep, intimate relationship with Jesus? What, what do we have to do to experience that? What, how, what is on offer through Jesus? And remember, nothing I'm saying is about getting right with God. That is done through Jesus. He's already done everything. This is simply what does it look like to respond and receive what Jesus has already done for us. Paul writes, attention, Paul writes, I want to know Christ. Just that simple bit that Paul, the apostle, the thing that he wants is just to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He continues and says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Just to clarify, he's twice he says that he presses on. Once he says straining towards. He talks of participating in Christ's suffering. He's talking about spiritual discipline. Positioning yourselves to take part in all of what God is wants, wants to do in your life. This is the way that Paul's desire to be with Jesus works itself out. The image that I have for this, and I genuinely felt like I was praying a little while, and this was something God kind of put on me, was the idea of we unplug from the world, and we plug back into God. And in that moment, life, all the joy and life that comes from God comes through us and back out into the world around us. So therefore, I want to think about how do we start unplugging? How do we stop listening to that attractive voice that says life is about pleasure and comfort and security and you, you wonderful, wonderful individual, deserve it at all costs. But instead, ask the question, how do we become free? 
if you've got a phone or a pen or paper, I would think this is the time to sort of get it out and make a couple of notes. I'm trying to try and think of something really practical at this point. So actually think, okay, how do we practically respond to this? Um, and it might not work the same for everyone. You've got to think, okay, how do you translate this into your context? I'm going to try and think of some practical things, and you've got to think, okay, what does that mean for me? So the first thing I want to talk about is fasting. Now, fasting is a deliberately going without food to spend time in prayer and worship. We learn from the earliest writings in the church. It's something that Jesus commands and to his disciples and, and says to them and offers to them, but also that um, is something that the early church would have done twice a week as, as normal. Fasting is about glorifying God. In its essence, fasting is the same as singing a song to God on a Sunday. It is an act of worship and dedication to God, a response to his glorious grace. But it's also one of the most useful ways we can disconnect and unplug from the world to allow us to reconnect with Jesus. Like, I don't know about you, but food controls me. Food has a lot of power over me. It dominates my thinking. It takes up my time. Even just taking one meal, but ideally one day where we don't eat per week, is a way of breaking its control over us. It feels awful at first. Oh my goodness, anyone who's tried fasting, it feels awful at first, obviously. That's why it's a discipline, but it's one of the most empowering and freeing things I have ever experienced. I read a quote the other day that fasting from food is feasting on God. Now, fasting is a statement to say, Jesus is what I'm building my life on. Jesus is the one that feeds me. It's unplugging from the world, and it's plugging back into God. So I cannot recommend highly enough that you build fasting in, into your week, something you can do. <clears throat> Even just one day, but even just starting out, just do one meal, try something. Another way we unplug is digital detox. And this will be more important for some than others. But think firstly about the media you're consuming. That might be television, that might be the things you're reading, the, uh, the music you're listening to, anything. Is it edifying? Does it build you up? Or is it like, violent, sexual, glorifying things which are contrary to the life-giving um, teaching of Jesus? Like, I'm not just talking about horror movies here, anything. Kids TV, soap operas, everything communicates messages that we each have to decide whether they bring us life or not. What is it being communicated to us? What, do we want to take this on board? Do we want this in our life? Or do we need to find something else? One thing I would say is really, really helpful is don't believe the lie that just because you enjoy it, it must be good. Instead, find things which are good and train yourself by discipline to really enjoy them. Secondly, with digital detox, think practically about how you can reduce the amount of media you consume, particularly like screen time. I don't know about you know, most parents will be absolutely worried all the time about how much TV or screen time their kids get. But yet for ourselves, often, we don't really you know, limit this or challenge ourselves. I know I definitely really struggle with this. But, um, and I think actually someone's just deciding, oh, I should spend a little bit less time on my phone doesn't make too much difference. We have to make deliberate choices to free ourselves from the influences on us. And it might be that you have to be practical. Buy a brick phone if that helps. Um, have rules in place that help you manage your engagement with media. One thing uh, Amy and I decided to try a few weeks ago because we realized that we were just, every night we were sitting down and watching Netflix and it was just becoming a bit of a habit, was we said, okay, we'll just have it on the weekends. We'll hold this back. We'll just have TV on the weekends. And what I found, this is spiritual discipline aside, by the time it got to the evening and I sat there going, ah, oh, I've got nothing else to do. That was the one time I tried praying in the evening. You know, it's like almost out of boredom rather than discipline, I ended up doing some prayer and Bible reading. You know, it's one of those things that we unplug from the world and it allows us to plug back into God. So those are two. One more is simplicity. Consider the way you spend your money. Okay, it's not surprising that in a capitalist society, the biggest lie that is fed to us, the more you buy and the more you own, the happier you will be. Uh, we're in an ecological crisis where we're overproducing and devastating our planet, but also individually and personally. We have this expectation that the quality of our life has to steadily improve throughout. That we're always on this way of advancement. How can I accumulate more? How can I make my life better? Um, that is what my life is about. That's what the ultimate aim is. That as we get older and we get richer, then somehow our life will get better. 
We then end up desperately protecting, fueling, and perpetuating an ever-improving lifestyle, and we're filled with fear that we might lose it. And it stops us from being brave and being bold in our faith because this is one thing we have to protect. Instead, Jesus presents a lifestyle committed to simplicity. And you've got to remember, like Paul writes this letter from prison. This is a man who, when he was a Pharisee, a leader of, in the church, he was you know, respected. He would have had the accumulated wealth that comes with that, the, the sort of status. And yet his life has just gone down and down and down in all of those categories until he's in prison with nothing. And yet, the words that he's telling his people is, rejoice. There is a joy in his life that is deeply tied to the simplicity of knowing God and knowing Christ. So again, just to make this practical, some helpful questions when you're buying something is, am I buying this for its usefulness or its status? Okay, another one might be, can I live without this? A third one I think is really helpful, I think a really good way of just checking our hearts is, is this producing or aiming to satisfy an addiction in me? Like for me, like often I, you know, I spend a lot of money on food because it's something that gives me that little energy kick, that joy kick, and it makes me go, oh, great, I'll, I'll turn to this because it makes me happy. And I notice that that's kind of something that I'm really aware of. For other people, it might just be like buying some clothes gives you that kick. Some people, it might be buying a new car. But we all have different things, but it's, it's what is it doing in our heart? What is this trying to satisfy? The amazing, beautiful thing that this does when we get it right is it makes space for incredible generosity. We believe the lie that these things will make us happy and therefore we deserve to have this ever-increasing quality of life, then we won't ever be able to hear the prompting of God to be generous, that it is better to give than to receive, that Jesus, the most contented person in the world, said foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. His, you know, his ministry included, he was homeless, right? it's like he died on a cross. If that's the person we're following. We've got to think, how does that affect the way we live? So those are the ways to unplug, and I just want to go for two quick ones now about um, how do we plug back into God? How do we allow him to pour life and truth and wisdom into us, changing us silently and slowly? The first thing is daily prayer. Prayer is the way we enjoy our relationship with God. Just as in any relationship, time together, both spoken and unspoken, affects us, then we will think then prayer with God is something that allows that to take place. I often think back to when, you, when I'm a child and think of your conversations with adults. Think when you were a child, what were your conversations with adults? What do they consist of? Like when I was young, my conversations with adults, my parents in particular, were, were always trying to think, can I get something from them? Can I convince them to do what I wanted? Can I get them to give me things? As I got older, I asked my parents more questions, trying to understand things. And later on then, as I became an adult, it became much more about listening as it is about talking. You know, now I chat to my parents about all sorts, simply try and enjoy their friendship. Now, we often start off by trying to make God more like us. We get frustrated and annoyed and wonder why we don't feel happy or excited at the end of a prayer time. But the more we do it, the more we learn to become like God. Praying is how God changes us. In prayer, we begin to think God's thoughts after him, to desire what he desires, to love what he loves, and to will what he wills. Therefore, when we start to think like God and to pray in line with his heart, that's when we really see our prayers answered. But it is a discipline. Like, that's the point of this. It takes time and energy. It might take drastic lifestyle change to be able to incorporate prayer into your day. But being in relationship with God is what you are about. It is what you are designed to do. Your actions, when you do this, your actions become your habits. Your habits become your character. And suddenly you find you're rooting yourself in God and you find yourself free from the demands of the world and able to live a life empowered by God. So I just recommend find the time every day to pray. Second one, and no one's going to be surprised at this after prayer, is reading the Bible. The Bible is where God has revealed himself, and when we want to spend time with Jesus, it's where we get to learn to recognize his voice and his heart. There's a moment in the Gospels where many of Jesus' followers decide to leave him because the challenges of his teaching are too much for them. And he, says, he turns to his disciples, the 12, and he says, will you also leave? 
And there's this beautiful desperation in their response. They simply say, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. The other followers wanted to find easy comfort. They wanted to find easy answers and pleasure at a much lower cost. So when the challenge came, they were out of there. But the disciples had seen the real lasting joy and life that could only be found in Jesus. So we've got to learn to unplug from the world and plug back into God. There's one of the desert mothers, one of those people in the fourth century who would go out and live in the desert to escape the corruption of the city. And they'd live this life of prayer and discipline. And she describes this whole process of unplugging from the world and plugging back into God as she says, in the beginning there are lots of battles and much suffering for those who are advancing towards God. But afterwards, unspeakable joy. Joy is not the aim of what we're doing. God is the aim. But when we know God, there is joy, there is peace, there is hope. Uh, There are people here who are spiritually light years ahead of me. They have spent the time on their knees. They have spent the days in their Bible. They know this stuff. It's more than I, I can even dream of. But if the Apostle Paul can say that he has not yet arrived at his goal, then there is a huge challenge for all of us to consider the way in which our lives are positioned. Like, are we paddling in the water with the wind flowing over our heads, or are we standing, positioned, ready to receive the grace of God, the love of Jesus, and the power of the Spirit? Just one more like, illustration to help you understand. When I learned to windsurf, most of the time was spent falling in the water. In, climbing back on again, getting my feet in the wrong position. Honestly, at one point, I fell, dislocated my shoulder, and almost drifted out to sea. Um, there was only one time when I caught the wind right, literally in this whole like, week or two of learning, one time where I genuinely caught the wind right and felt like I was actually moving and being pulled along by it. I was probably moving about two miles an hour, but that experience has stayed with me for over a decade, and I wouldn't exchange it for anything. How much more valuable is a second in the presence of Jesus? What would we give for that? What things have we accepted as normal that have made it impossible for us to spend time with God? Yes, if you do this, it will be uncomfortable. It will be painful. There will be moments where it feels like you've had your shoulder dislocated and you're drifting out to sea. But afterwards, unspeakable joy. It's not easy. Paul doesn't just say he wants to know Christ in his resurrection glory. He wants to know him in his suffering and his death. Fasting can feel like death. Giving away your money can feel like death. Offering to pray for someone when they don't know Jesus can feel like death. But if we want to know the true joy of Christ's resurrection and new life, then we have to let the old life die. Your strongest desires are not necessarily your deepest desires. Stop for a moment and just think, what is it you really want? What do you want for your life? Because once you decide that everything we've said today is about going to battle against those strongest desires, the desires of the flesh, the things that pull you away from God, Paul encourages us to crucify those desires. He's not using like weak language. He's putting it strongly. So I'm calling us into something painful and difficult, But way more than that, this stuff is about coming into the presence of God and in his presence, unspeakable joy. We can't do this alone. We know this. We are a community. We need to encourage one another. We need to support one another. We challenge one another. But one of the main things we need is the Holy Spirit. So it would be great. great if you could stand. If you can, if you're able, it would be really good to stand. And we're going to pray. And it's going to be a very basic prayer. It's going to be, I can't do this. God, I need you. Because none of us not strength. And what I love is, is if people are like, I really want to do this. I really, this is it. This is the thing I want for my life. And to come at the front, and some of the prayer team will come and pray for you. And they're just going to pray a really basic prayer. All you've got to do is stand there with your hands out like this, and they'll pray a really basic prayer. It'll just be, Holy Spirit, help them. Okay? So, 
I'm just going to pray once now, and then it would be great if after that then anyone who wants prayer can come up. So, Father God, we find this hard, Lord God. It's scary stepping into this, Lord God. We've got things that we believe about what will bring us happiness and joy, and they've not worked so far. And we know that Jesus is offering us something different, and it's a bit scary to take it. So come now, Lord God. I pray you rewire our brains. Help us to believe this stuff, Lord God, but also simply that you'll help us to make decisions that will position our bodies to receive what you're doing. Just pray for your Holy Spirit in every life in this room now. Come, Lord Jesus. Come now, Lord God. If, if you'd like to receive prayer, I just recommend you come.